Happy Saturday. Or Thursday for <laughs> listeners. I was going to say, we got to stop saying I've that done because that before, yeah. they listen at least on Thursday. Happy Thursday. But hey, if you listen to this on a Saturday, then hey. happy, happy Saturday. Saturday. <laughs> I'm Savannah. I'm Alicia. And this is Burden of Proof. All right. Welcome, everyone. Actually, we should say happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Wait, we should start over. Happy Thanksgiving. What are you thankful for? I am thankful for so much. I mean, to get real. But, you know, we don't like being... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you and I, you and I aren't good at the whole um, being sappy and sentimental. We do that in our heads a yeah, lot, a lot. But like, we don't talk about it. I think that's literally what I wrote in your birthday card. Is yes. I'm not going to be sappy, but happy yeah. birthday. But no, I, I'm thankful for a lot. But to express it outwardly, I'm thankful for Chick Fil A. <laughs> I'm also <laughs> really grateful for Chick Fil A. Grateful for our listeners. Yes. And I'm grateful for you and for your family. And I'm grateful for my family. And I'm grateful for Moira Rose so that I have somebody to talk about or talk like all the time. (laughs) Happy Thanksgiving. (laughs) See, that was good. You did get a little sentimental. uh, Yeah. Well, I threw in the Moira bit to kind of offset. (laughs) Offset (laughs) it. Nice. Nice. I, I too. I'm thankful for that show. Oh my gosh. Such, Any so listener, good. I can't imagine that there's anybody listening to this that hasn't watched Shit's Creek, but if you haven't, highly recommend. You definitely should. Absolutely. <laughs> so, are we ready for some Thanksgiving? What murder? episode are we listening to today? We are going to cover Paul Michael marriage. Paul Michael That's right. marriage. Something about the names Paul Michael don't go well together. I love that Paul Michael Stefani case. It's a good one. Yeah. This is our second case with a Paul Michael. Okay, guys, we just want to cut in for a moment just to warn anybody who may have some sensitive information triggers. This case does include the death of a child and kind of a mass shooting. So if you have any triggers regarding those topics, you might want to fast forward when we get into the information. Also, it is a family Thanksgiving. So if family Thanksgiving dinners <laughs> trigger you. Like, hey, man, I know COVID was rough on some yeah. families. So. so we just wanted to like cut in and give that warning ahead of time. You won't miss it. You'll still get the gist of the case if if you do skip those parts, like the those details. And Savannah wanted to give... A reminder. Yeah. So again, we are paralegals. We are not attorneys. We are not legal experts. We do talk a little bit more about the law in this case, but nothing we should say, nothing we say should ever be taken as legal advice. And yeah, even if you skip over some of the details of the actual crime, you'll still gleam a lot from this episode, I think, especially when it comes to, to the law portion. Yes, absolutely. It's a great case, but it's a heavy one. Yep. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. We are covering Paul Michael marriage. He was born in 1974 to parents Michael and Carol marriage. He was the eldest of three children. The marriage's younger children were twin girls, Carla and Lisa, who were just a couple years younger than Paul. Being the eldest and only son, Paul grew up with a cloud of expectations, for lack of a better term, kind of following him. His father, Michael, was very successful and tried to teach his son how to be as successful. Mm -hmm. 
Paul did well to meet those expectations until he was about 18 when he began uh, suffering from some mental health issues, and it escalated rather quickly. By the time Paul was 20 years old, he began acting out aggressively and showing signs of social dysfunction. He would even make threats of violence towards family members, both immediate and extended. It's kind of a late age to start showing those signs. Normally, it's younger. Yeah. But 20 is kind of late. Yeah. So I question, did he did he just manage to like kind of keep it under wraps? Was, was it that when he was a little bit younger, like it was there, but like he was too scared maybe at that age to really get more aggressive like it it, to me 18 seemed like kind of a late age to really start having the kind of problems that he had yeah because it wasn't just your typical like generalized anxiety kind of stuff it's like much more serious stuff so it seems to me like it probably actually started kind of popping up at puberty Mm -hmm. but he either managed to really like mask it or everybody just kind of chalked it up to like, oh, he's a teenager, you know? And it wasn't until he turned 18 and I think he went away to college. So we'll get into the whole moving around bit. So despite his aggressive behavior, Paul's parents moved him back into their home. So that's what makes me think he was like away at college. Yeah. And by the time he was 22, he was deemed legally disabled from this mental oh, health wow. condition. Yes. And what, I'm sorry, what year was this? So when he was 20, he was born in 1974. So when he was 22, it would have been like, like the late, late 90s. 90s. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of a big deal to be labeled disabled. Yes. At 22, like out of pretty, not out of nowhere, but, you know, right. you left college to come move How back home. How does it escalate? Like that's... What led to that is my question. Yeah. Well, there's not a lot well, of yeah. information or those types of details. So <laughs> during the time that he lived with his parents, like moved back in with his parents, okay, the police were called to the residence for domestic disturbances at least 10 times, all of which were due to his violent behavior and threats of violence. In many of these incidents, he refused to take his medications. Three of those times, it led to Paul being Baker acted, including in 1999 when he attempted suicide by shooting himself in the chest. So for those of you who don't know, being... I'm I'm going to get there. Okay. (laughs) For those of you that don't know, that was going to be my very next sentence. So for those of you that are outside of Florida are not aware of what the Baker Act is, it is a Florida mental health statute, better known as the Florida Baker Act, named after Maxine Baker, the former state representative who sponsored it. It allows a select group of professionals to initiate a mandatory psychiatric evaluation for individuals who whose recent behavior suggests that they pose a risk to themselves or others. So, obviously, doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists, counselors fall under that group, 
but it also allows social workers, judges, and law enforcement to initiate the process as well. Yes. Sound right? You agree? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, every time police were called to the marriage's residence, they had to determine if Paul was a danger to anyone. And at least three of those times, Mm -hmm. they said, yes. Yes, he is. And what's hard is that being Baker acted is a, it's a long it's a hard process to go through. It really through. is, yeah. And it's it you know sometimes it can make it worse. A lot of times it makes it better. A lot of times people get the help that they need through the system, but sometimes the actual process of it it makes it worse. I think in these cases because he already was getting treated, he would just stop his medication yeah. and then act out, and then so in these cases. I feel like it's it's just traumatic. Like there's nothing mm-hmm. else you can do. Yeah, it's but and it's for the safety of other people. Yes, exactly. And it just sucks that it it doesn't in turn in response to helping other people negatively affect him. Yeah. So here's the, the, I'm speculating here. I'll make that abundantly clear. I'm speculating. This is not part of the actual factual research, but as I researched the full case and like the outcome of everything it dawned on me that i wonder based on the information about him being baker acted so many times i kind of wonder if his parents michael and carol convinced police other times not to baker act act him that they will take care of it that they've got it under control very likely because I know police don't want to do this unless they have to. Like, they just... Mm -hmm. So, depending on the situation, in this case with him being their son, him being legally disabled, you know, because of his mental health, if they're like, no, no, we've got it, it's okay, it's going to be, you know, if they let it slide. So, down to the nitty-gritty of... What it was that seemed to bother, like, the things that bothered Paul so much. Paul specifically seemed to hold deep resentment and even hatred toward his sisters, Carla and Lisa, as well as his uncle, Dr. Antoine Joseph. Oh, red flag. Yeah, who was his mother's brother. So just to connect the dots here. Apparently, Dr. Joseph is... Possibly the first, it didn't like detail, but at some point, Dr. Joseph, his uncle, was treating him for the mental Mm -hmm. health issues. That didn't go well, apparently. (laughs) Yeah. So much so, Paul had so much resentment and stuff for each of them that at one point, his sisters, one of at least one of his sisters, had filed a restraining order against him and then later revoked it. And his uncle had not seen Paul in many years because of it. He did not want Paul in his presence. In fact, in 2008, when the whole family talked about having holiday get-togethers at Thanksgiving and Christmas, Dr. Joseph said, if you bring Paul or you invite Paul, I will cancel. Like, I won't let anybody in my house. Yeah. So... Oh, that's how that's, serious we're talking. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's so hard for the sisters, too, because their their parents are still, you know, supporting him as mm-hmm. they should. But then it's also like, 
that sucks that you feel like you can't see your parents. You feel like you can't go home. Yeah. You know, I feel I really do feel for families who it's such yeah. a weird balance that they have and they're struggling. Yeah. Well, when you have somebody, when you have loved ones that have mental health issues, it doesn't just affect them. It affects the whole family. Mm-hmm. So everybody has to kind of. And everybody's just doing their best. Yeah. Yeah. Because this sounds like they really were. It sounds like they were doing everything they could for him. Yeah. I mean, they. I don't know that they knew what to do for him. Like, yeah. it's one of those tricky situations. Like, I could easily, and I. there are some things that I question about this case, but it's one of those things where it's easy to, lo- like, stand outside and point fingers at the parents and go, but did you really need to do that? Did you really, should you have yeah. really done that? But at the same time, like, there is no parent handbook for mentally yeah. ill children. Like, you expect that your children will thrive and grow up and become independent, productive citizens. And and then when that suddenly doesn't happen, what what do you do? Well, no, it's also the early 90s or mid-90s. It's, like, late 90s at this okay. point. Yeah. So, I mean, mental health at that point... That was kind of, I would say that's probably the very beginning of, like, people really, like, like, the average people really even starting to have an idea that, like... The conversation was just starting about it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, because of Paul's inability to live independently, he continued to live with and financially rely on Michael and Carol. They controlled everything including his accommodations his mental health treatment his transportation and even his spending money despite this control it does not appear that they did much to prevent him from acquiring firearms even after even after his suicide attempt now can they control that probably not really but that's why i tried to choose my words carefully because on one hand, like, I get it. He's He is an adult. He can go out and do things. Like, he had access to it. Like, they bought him cars. They, you know, they gave him a certain level of freedom because apparently they or doctors didn't feel like, okay, no, he needs to be institutionalized. But it is kind of worrisome. Like, did, did you try to prevent that? Like, he's bringing these firearms into your home. So I don't I don't know. I have mixed feelings about that. And then, of course, that opens the whole door of like, where where does the responsibility lie? And that is it's in the gun control. Yeah, because is he legally if he's all, legally disabled, who had that responsibility? But the, the weird thing to me that sticks out is it's just out of air. It's out of character because they've they've controlled so much. No. And they've done everything they can to kind of keep other people safe and to keep him safe and given him what they could. Yeah. But then this doesn't fit that narrative. Yeah. So this is Florida. This is Florida. <laughs> this is so, Florida. So you know, I don't know if they just they didn't fight here. that because this is Florida. So people like their guns here. Yeah. And they knew they didn't have, like, they weren't necessarily going to have, like, well, and if they, had, if they had guns in the house, do you know if they had guns in the house prior to his firearms? Or? I don't know. Because There's if they not- did, they may have felt like, well, if we have them, it's not fair for us to say you can't have them. Yeah, possibly. Who knows? Possibly. I don't know. I don't know. 
But something about your tone makes me think that this does not go well. Mm, no. And considering that this is a true crime podcast <laughs> and <laughs> you read the title Spoiler. in the description, so, you know. Man buys guns. True uh, crime. You guys, the listeners have a leg up on me because they get to read the description and the title before the episode. Before, I yeah, don't. This I'm, is all surprising. Yep. So... Finally, in the early months of 2009, Michael and Carol purchased a condominium in Miami for Paul and left him on his own, said, you're moving out, Paul. We got you this condo. You can be independent, like more independent. So when you think about it at this point in 2009, he's 35 years old. And this is the first time in his life that he is living on his own. He went Does he have a job? Parents to college back home to parents until he's 35 no he he's disabled he's been deemed that's what they mean by deemed disabled is i'm sure i figured i was just clarifying i'm sure he couldn't hold down a job so he he was probably getting some kind of social security disability because of that so later in the year now we're at thanksgiving of 2009 what a year 2009 hmm the marriage family is invited, as usual, to Carol's niece's home in Jupiter, Florida. This niece is Mur- her name is Muriel Sitton, and she is Dr. Antoine Joseph's daughter. Okay. So just to piece it all together. Muriel and her husband, Jim, were hosting the large family gathering and expected about 12 others to join them, join them and their six-year-old daughter, Michaela. Shortly after Michael and Carol' marriage arrive, the Sittens overhear Michael on the phone giving directions to an unexpected guest. Despite the fact that Paul had not attended family dinners in over a decade, and Carol's brother Antoine, Dr. Joseph, threatened to cancel the previous year's get-together if they invited him, Michael and Carol agreed that Paul could come to dinner without notifying the extended family that he may show up. Well, that's rude. Paul had been asking his parents about the dinner the days prior, including who would be attending specifically, but he never confirmed that he was definitely coming. So that kind of makes me think that they didn't tell the extended family because they weren't sure he was yeah. gonna come and they didn't want to rock the boat they didn't want pe- anybody to like panic and cancel or yeah you know. they were like well we'll just deal with it when it happens yes now still rude so paul shows up but like what are you gonna do at that point right oh, you don't I like i know i know like some of us would be okay with just being like listen i'm gonna put a damper on dinner for a few minutes no, you you're not go. welcome. You got to go. But a lot of families, I could see a lot of people doing this and being like, as much as I don't want him here, like, I don't want to ruin the dinner. I don't want to yeah, upset I people. Do I don't want to rock the boat. This goes against better judgment, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> Clearly, their decision to go ahead and let him come was a mistake. But the extended family didn't really know the full extent they knew that paul had been aggressive paul had had moments but they didn't really know like where he was in his state of mind leading up to this dinner so i could see how they would be Mm -hmm. like well okay let's not rock the boat 
However, it's reported that once Paul moved out on his own, he quickly had become extremely reclusive, even not letting anyone into his condo except the housekeeper. And it was that housekeeper that basically kept tabs on him. Yeah. Even though she couldn't keep him in check, she kept tabs on, like, what is he doing? How is he living? She was actually reporting these things yeah. to Carol Marriage. And they neglected to, like, really follow up, tell anybody, yeah. you know? They did what they could, but Paul had, the housekeeper did, in fact, tell them. It appears that he has stopped taking his medications, and he is not going oh, to therapy. He is not wow. leaving this apartment. He's not doing anything. And still, they don't question why he would want to suddenly come to dinner. In fact, Carol went so far as to email her daughter about the dinner prior, letting her know, like, he's asked to come. He's asking about the dinner. He's talking about coming. And she even makes a joke saying, well, hopefully he doesn't come and kill us all. <gasps> to which her daughter says, don't tell dad you said that. Don't let him know, like, we're thinking thoughts like that. Yeah. I don't even, I can't, I don't even know what to say to that. If that's at all something that you have to joke about, then he should not be coming to dinner. If that has crossed your mind at all. Yeah. Like, like, it's one thing to, and this is going to sound horrible, but you know what I mean? It's it's one thing to invite him to dinner with, like, your family and to take a risk with your family. Yeah. People will agree to be there. the immediate but family. But it's not but okay this, There's to multiple people there. That there did, was, not, can, did not say, yeah, yeah I trust him. They there was, just, like, 16 people here. And I don't even know the relation... Of anybody else. So, like, some of these other family members that were at this dinner could have been in-laws. Like, other people yeah. that are not related to Paul whatsoever. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. The, like... <laughs> I'm just trying... I'm already thinking ahead to, like, the legal responsibility here. I'm sorry. <laughs> we'll get That's, there. Yeah. We will. <laughs> <laughs> so... Here's this huge extended family having what they believe will be a time to connect and show thanks. And in reality, Paul is just like biding his time. He joined them to sit down for dinner, but he did not eat. That's so creepy. Can he, you can you imagine? No, yeah. I am not hungry today. <laughs> it's I came to this dinner, but I am not eating. It's Thanksgiving. The whole point is to eat. No, I will not be partaking. <laughs> So he then proceeds to watch them as they participate in, they do like holiday sing-alongs after the dinner. Well, that's creepy. <laughs> and like some family members noted like it's weird because he was sitting like on the outskirt of the room. Like they're all kind of like gathered around and he's like sitting in the corner just watching, not singing, not participating. Not getting up and walking away at first, like, just watching. And then suddenly he got up and walked away, but he literally walked through the middle of their circle. Like, instead of walking around and leaving the room some other way. And Jim Sitton noticed, like, wow, that's rude. Like, 
Yeah. You know. But they they all witnesses said, well, it was rude, but like he wasn't being violent. They were thankful that like, oh, he seems he's kind of keeping to himself. But hey, at least he hasn't like started any fights and he's not acting out and he's not being aggressive. So they're thinking, okay, this is okay. After the sing-along's done, the sit-ins put their daughter Michaela to bed. And a little bit later at the end of the evening, everyone is winding up conversation, helping to clean up, etc. When Paul leaves the house to get something from his car. Suddenly, there's gunfire. Not like he walks in the room. No, from a distance, there's gunfire. Paul first shoots Raymond Joseph, the wife of Dr. Antoine Joseph. And she is also, of course, Muriel, mm -hmm. Muriel Sitton's mom. mom. Okay. Next, he opens fire on his two sisters and brother-in-law, hitting all three of them, as well as then one of the bullets grazed another man named Clifford Gabara. I have no idea Clifford's relation. relation. That's why I say... I think there were people there that might have been like distant or in-laws or something that they're thinking, oh my God, like crazy man, I'm not even related to you. But during all this, no one sees the shooter at first. So they're panicking, just trying to scramble to get to the nearest exit or hide wherever they can. But Antoine Joseph rushes to the side of his wife when Paul then enters the room turns the gun on him, and pulls the trigger. But the gun jammed. Once he got it unjammed, instead of turning to Antoine, who just saw him, is the first person to recognize him and see him as the shooter, he doesn't. I don't know if he saw that as, like, a sign, like, even though you're one of the people I am most angry at. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. He, he didn't. Instead, Paul turns walks away, and at that moment, Muriel Sitton, Jim Sitton, and a bunch of other people had made it outside and are outside the house, ducking in the bushes, but watching the house for things to, like, calm down. Muriel is freaking out, saying, I need to go in there and get Michaela. Yeah, they've got a baby. Yeah, I mean, she's six, but yes. That's, that's their, a baby. Their only daughter. <laughs> When Jim Sitton stops her because he thinks, no, she's, she's sleeping, she's in her room, it'll be okay. Like, this person won't even, because remember, they haven't seen who the shooter is, so they don't know don't at know. this point. So he's thinking, oh, they won't even know she's in there. Yeah. And just then, Muriel says she sees the shadow of the person walking through the <gasps> windows down the hall from window to window. And he goes into Michaela's room, and a second later, they hear a shot. <gasps> Paul went all the way to the bedroom, didn't shoot Dr. Joseph, who he's angry at. He went all the way to the bedroom to shoot his six-year-old cousin as she's sleeping, point blank. Oh, my God. I'm glad I got through that without crying because I really questioned. I'm about to. Yes, I really had a hard time doing the research. Oh my and, gosh, I'm going to get some And water. hearing this. So Paul then just 
walks away from the scene, not runs, just literally walks out and disappears. So, where's his, where's his sibling? Like, were all three of his siblings dead? We'll get there. Okay. I have so many questions. Okay. I hope I you know. have answers. I know. So, Jupiter police and EMS arrive on the scene. Michaela Sitton, six year old Michaela, and Patrick Knight, Paul's brother in law, are immediately taken to the hospital. All the other victims who were critically wounded are dead upon arrival. Mm -hmm. So, Raymond Joseph, Carla Marriage, Paul's sister, mm -hmm. Lisa Knight, his other sister, who, by the way, was pregnant. <gasps> yes. And uh, Michaela was, had survived at that point. And then, of course, the guy who got grazed by the bullet. Mm -hmm. I don't know what happened. He's, like, mentioned that it grazed yeah. him. And then, like, I don't know what happened. I assume they may have even stitched him up in the ambulance and, like, yeah. let him stay. I don't know. So Jimmy and Muriel Sitton obviously desperately want to go leave with their daughter to go to the hospital and be with her. But unfortunately, police had to keep everyone yeah. there for questioning. So by the time the Sittons get questioned and then released and get to the hospital, their little girl had already passed away. That's horrible. I'm going to cry. Don't cry. That's horrible. <laughs> yeah. So happy Thanksgiving, y'all. Happy, happy Thanksgiving. So as police canvass the area, a neighbor says that they saw a man fitting Paul's description walking away from the Sitton's house and leave in a blue 2007 Toyota Camry. The manhunt gets underway, leaving the family members living with fear that Paul will come back to finish the job. Yeah. Yes. I think I'd I think I'd get in my car and just leave the state. I don't think I could stay where he would know where I was. That's horrifying. Yeah. Halloween was last month, Paul. Yeah. Um, you don't scare people or kill them. Yeah. It's not okay. So police did offer security detail twenty four seven at the Sitton's home and even told them this is disturbing. Even told them, put up curtains. Because, you know, a lot of people in Florida don't. Yeah. Like, they literally won't have curtains, depending on how your house is situated mm -hmm. or whatever. They apparently didn't have curtains. The police said, put up curtains. And when they asked why, they explained that once they started doing some digging, they found that Paul had not only bought multiple guns prior to the shooting but that he had also bought a scope for one of the rifles. Mm -hmm. And they think, they believe that that's when he first started shooting and nobody saw saw anybody, that that's how it started. Needless to say, Jim and Muriel were like, uh, we don't feel very safe and we want justice. We want this guy caught, but he's nowhere. They can't find him. Despite that, they decide to carry on and arrange um, memorial services for both Raymond and Michaela. The turnout for the services was expected to be quite a crowd, as Dr. Joseph and his wife were well known in the community 
um, of course. And Jim Sitton is actually a video or photojournalist for um, a pretty major news network Mm. in Florida. With Paul still on the loose and the number of people expected to attend, the police were like, "Um, can you not, can you not maybe, maybe don't do this right now. Maybe hold on until we actually catch him. And they're like, no, we want to put them to rest. You don't need their bodies for the investigation. Like, you know what happened, you know, like. Yeah, but it's a danger to have the event. Yes. So they found a compromise and police asked the Sittons to change the venue from the church where they were going to hold it to a local school where they can have a structured Mm -hmm. security. This was unlike anything I have ever seen. I mean, they did an excellent job, but. It was set up like going through the TSA. Hey, I'm they glad that they. I'm glad checked, that they did it. Yeah, they literally checked everybody. So, like, how weird would that be? That you, I would kind of be scared attending if I'm just a person yeah. that like, oh well, I work at the news place with their dad, so I'm just coming to pay respects. And they're like, open your bag, check your, <laughs> take your belt off, hold like, your arms your, out to the side, patting you down, like. That would be so strange, but it's fantastic that they did it that way because that's the only way the family felt safe to do, you know, to have the services. So while police are investigating, they also learned that Paul had withdrawn tens of thousands of dollars of cash from his accounts in the weeks leading up to Thanksgiving. So here's the thing. While the marriage, this just is like one more little thing that you're like, yeah. Listen, Michael and Carol, you could have been a little like as much as they had control of these things, they clearly were not controlling. I'm sorry. Most people with mental health disorders, especially something this severe, they do not need access to tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah. Because if nothing else, even if they're not a danger to anybody, it's pretty well known, like, especially if they have any kind of bipolar or anything with manic episodes, they're terrible with money and they're they will go and blow it. all that money when they're on a manic episode. So why would you just, why, how? <laughs> yeah. So it, and I was, and, and this is what I was thinking too, if he's on disability, there's only so much money that you can have access to sometimes with certain government programs. Mm-hmm. So I I think this type of disability, though, may it may be different because that's true. But remember, like some of the programs only look at income, not assets. Okay. So if this was like money was already like family money or whatever, they don't even necessarily look at that, which... Fair enough. Okay. Sometimes maybe they should, but well, yeah, they but. don't. So, so Paul is on the lam with no trace. MIA. And clearly he has enough money to make it for a while or to get far away, depending on what he decides to do. There's no way to track him through financial records. So an entire month goes by and still no sign of him. The family has been torn apart. By this tragedy. Well, of course. Yeah. No shock. Are you kidding? And I'm not a very forgiving person at all. I would never speak to them again. Yeah. 
No, there was definitely no contact yeah. between the two sides of the families. Definitely not. A lot of the perspective that I'm giving is mostly for the Sittens were the ones who were more active, obviously, with him being a video journalist, photojournalist. Yeah. He had contacts and whatnot, so they have done way more interviews and stuff than anybody else involved in this case. But even if it wasn't coming from them, like, it's hard to hear the facts and not go, come on. Yeah. How did you not see something like this coming, even if it wasn't this exact thing? How? I don't know. (laughs) I would have been... I would have probably questioned it, but I'm a suspicious person, so don't well, be Well, yes. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. <laughs> Sorry. It's a Parks and Rec <laughs> <laughs> reference. Anyway, the family so it's coming up on Christmas. The family will have a holly jolly Christmas. Yeah. Basically you have no interest in celebrating Christmas. It's just That's not so sad. You know. Yeah, this is a horrible case. It really is. My apologies. <laughs> but such it, a happy holiday. Are, well, are they, I will say Thanksgiving, not really a great holiday. It's lots of food. But yeah. the original Thanksgiving is horrible. Well, yeah. so it's kind of it's fitting. Yeah. <laughs> so now enters good old John Walsh and America's most wanted. I knew that name sounded familiar. Yes. Scheduled to air the evening of January 2nd, 2010. The show's tip line actually received a call before the show even began. When the manager or owner, it wasn't totally clear, but anyway, somebody in charge of a motel in the Florida Keys actually saw the commercial prior to that night's show and recognized Paul as one of the guests staying in their motel. Oh my gosh. I would I would panic. I'd be like, shit, 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 shit. Where are my keys? Where are my keys? Manager, I'm abandoning the desk. I can't stay here. He didn't. He like he apparently lived on site, I think. And him and his wife were watching TV and he was like, hey, that's that guy staying in such and such room. And she's like, well, oh, shit. <laughs> like, I mean, she didn't say that. But well, she probably I, did. She probably did. So he calls the tip line while he's on the phone with authorities. He bravely, very bravely goes out, sneaks outside to check the license plate on the car that Paul had parked and covered with a tarp. So he couldn't just like casually like walk by or see it from a distance. He had to go to the car and like lift up the tarp, get the oh, license plate n- number. Can you imagine the adrenaline? No. <laughs> like I'd pee myself. <laughs> I pee myself on a good day. Like I <laughs> and I get I'm nervous and like three oh, kids. So I absolutely I do. Pee. <laughs> Y'all on a real note, though, yesterday I told my best friend, I was like, I this is the first time in my life that I genuinely don't think I'm going to. I I have to go so bad. I have to pee so bad. Yeah, we made it, but it was close. Dang, I, I wouldn't make it. Well, it was a three hour drive and then like 20 minutes for parking. And then I drank a lot of water. Yeah. And we finally got it. And I was like, I first person I saw, where is the bathroom? <laughs> I got to go. I got to go now. Yeah. Well, I feel you. I we've all been there. Three kids, all the ladies out there with kids, we know. Mom bladder. So yep. I don't know how he it's didn't pee thing. himself checking the li- license plate. Uh, yeah, but he did it. 
And a real hero, that one. Yes. And so they confirmed that the license plate on the car was one that had been registered to Michael Marriage for a different vehicle. They had to swap the plates out. They had swapped the plates. So within hours of America's Most Wanted episode airing, U.S. Marshals busted into Paul's motel room and took him into custody. So wait, I have a question, and you might not know because this is a timeline-specific question. Mm -hmm. If they saw the commercial Mm -hmm. and then called, why did it take so long for them to get there? Oh, just organizing the whole thing. They have to, or and of course, it's America's Most Wanted, so they recorded him getting taken away so they had to like so i believe the process i guess i don't know for sure but i believe the process is that when somebody calls that tip line they take information but when when they realize like oh this is credible this is real they either have people that are like the authorities who they're working with the police or i don't know if they work with fbi or who they work with but then they put them on with those people. They advise them on like, okay, what can be done? Like in cases like this, like what can yeah. be done? Can you find out any more information? He did. They then need to contact because it typically is the U.S. Marshals who do the most go. Wanted. And so then they have to contact the U.S. Marshals. And then America's Most Wanted has to get people on the ground, go and record the whole thing. So I guess I'm thinking, why yeah. didn't they just call 911 and then somebody come arrest him? But the answer is because it was a production at that point. Well, I think part of it, but even if it wasn't a production, I think they would still send U.S. Marshals and stuff because it, it's basically like they know he's armed. They know yeah. he's dangerous. They don't want to send Joe Schmo cop, local cop yeah. that's not used to this From the kind Florida of keys. Yeah. Like this is. Yeah, the, OK, fair enough. You know, he might be at the bar doing Jimmy Buffett karaoke. Don't bother yeah, him man. on his day off. I'm just imagining. I don't right know. There might West. be a ton of crime in Key West, in the Keys, but I not that I've heard. And mostly there's just... Weed. There probably is a lot of that. In the Florida Keys? Oh, yeah. yeah. Key West? But mostly I just envision yeah. Jimmy Buffett people. You probably don't even know who Jimmy Buffett is. Do you know I who Jimmy know Buffett who Jimmy is? I know who Jimmy Buffett is. Okay. I am not a Jimmy Buffett fan. I've oh, just, my dad loves some Jimmy Buffett. I just am very familiar with him. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> I was on. just curious about what that was. So you explained that. Thank you very much. Okay. Is Wait, so can I just watch this episode on YouTube? Yeah. one of Well, one of my... I have just the clip of it. One of my sources oh. is the clip from America's Most Wanted where he's captured. Oh, I'm going to watch that later. So. It'll be linked in the show notes. Will right. it? Will it be? Yeah. Yeah, it'll be yeah. linked in show notes. Yeah, I've been putting all those in. So, his statement to America's Most Wanted as he's being handcuffed and hauled away is that he has been tormented for years with chronic medical and mental problems. Quote, it's been a nightmare. I didn't even know what I was doing. But you bought a scope, which means premeditation, you bought which a means scope, you, did. you took out money, you, st- like... You changed the plates on your car. No, you He bought that car just before. Yeah, like just a little bit before. Mm. It was definitely premeditated. No. No, honey. So no. They were like, okay, then why have you been hiding out? If you really just did something out of anger suddenly, typically you would just freeze and be like, oh my God, what did I just do? Yeah. 
no, they're like, why have you been hiding out then? He said, I didn't even know what to do. I went several times to turn myself in. I was maybe waiting for my parents to make a statement because I didn't know what to do. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no words. So police find evidence in the motel room that Paul was likely planning on committing suicide at some point. Yeah. And they found the book Final Exit, The Practicalities of Self-Deliverance and Assisted Suicide for the Dying. Okay. Well, you're not dying. So. Physicians Assisted Suicide is like. It's not the same. It's not the same at all. They also find that in one of his trips to a nearby Kmart, he had bought five helium kits, garbage bags, scissors, duct tape, tubing, and hose clamps all of which are the materials needed for one of the methods detailed in the book. And phone records show that Paul had called the hotline or the phone number given in this book nine times. So the author of the book had set up a phone number that people could call to get direct and like one-on-one questions answered I don't know what they talk about other than the author kind of talked about it um, in the article that I read that it's more so just so he can answer questions or like expand on something if they didn't understand something in the book or something. I don't know. To me, it was I'm I'm the face you're making. <laughs> I don't know. It's what to because say. I don't know how to I don't know what I think enough to say it. <laughs> like, I yeah, I yeah. don't know how to say what I'm thinking. This is one of those topics. Yeah. I'm one of the people who I, I think that if you are dying, you have the right to die with dignity. But I think that it needs to be done with a physician. Yeah. I think that if that's the route you want to take, you know, you know. But they but can't if you're in a state it, you that can't if allow. you're not allowed to. And yeah. this is Florida and that's not allowed. And so um and Paul, and you're also Paul not wasn't dying. dying. You're not dying. This <laughs> doesn't apply not, to you. Yeah. But and and who and like what I don't know what qualifies the author of the book to do that I don't know I don't know I didn't even know there was such a book I, I don't was either a little bit shocked yeah. when I read that so, um, so I I don't know what to say about him I, having a hotline where he would assist people in that yeah without knowing yeah their stories and I I don't know the legality of that if you're not assisting a crime if it's not in the state that they live in like that feels illegal to me right so paul had called nine times the author Derek humphrey apparently screens these calls personally and records showed that he called from that number somebody called from that number back to paul's phone one time Now, in an interview afterwards, Humphreys claimed that he had no recollection of speaking with Paul and that he would turn anyone in if he suspected their reason for suicide is that they've committed a crime and that it's not he he wanted to stress very much that like, no, this is just for people who are dying, who have. Which fair. Yeah. So. No, and like that that's your choice and you have in certain states you have the right to do that. Yeah. And I I, not I say that I understand that that you know feeling of wanting to control that aspect if you are terminal and you want to control how that goes, I absolutely understand that. But that does not apply to Paul and 
no, I understand what you're saying about that. I have mixed feelings on that. I understand the individual's feeling of I don't want to go out like really, really sick. Yeah. You know, my mother-in-law died from ovarian cancer turned into his spread. I understand that. I think, though, that hospice workers are freaking angels. They are. They are. And I very much feel like I'm okay with hospice. That's just my personal feeling. Like, pump me with morphine. Make me comfortable. Yeah. Let me go. Like, don't do the extras. I'll even, you know, I'm, you know, like, I'm all about living wills. Take me off of stuff. Yeah. But I don't know. I have very mixed feelings on, like, actual assisted suicide. I get it. I get why people want to do it. Yeah, I understand it, for sure. Um, I just don't know, personally, if I... I don't know. I have such mixed feelings about it. So it is, but I do get what you're saying. It's a polarizing topic for sure. Yeah. All that to be said, I think I disagree with the premise of a hotline or a book about it because of this situation. It's getting put in the wrong hands because it's and what was (laughs) yeah. First of all, it's not legal. Second, what was attempt was it was trying to be a resource has turned into a tool, Mm -hmm. and I think they're different things. Yeah. That makes sense. So what happens next? <laughs> so, so while the family, at least the Sitton family, were relieved that Paul had been caught, many of them would not get the outcome they hoped for. Paul's public defenders expressed that their plan was to implement an insanity defense, of course. The prosecution, for whatever reason, decided to make a deal. Paul was given a plea deal to avoid the death penalty. And in October 2011, pleaded guilty to four counts of premeditated murder and three counts attempted first-degree murder. After hearing victim impact statements, the judge sentenced him to seven life consecutive sentences. I said that backwards. Sort of. You get what I'm saying? Seven consecutive life sentences. (laughs) Adding the comment, you will never see the light of day. Well. But... The Sittens were less than pleased. In fact, the judge had to tell Jim Sitton to stop in the middle of his statement. Like, he literally got on his knees and was, like, begging the judge not to allow this deal to go through because they felt that the only justice is the death sentence. I mean, I'm looking at a picture of the father of Michaela. I forgot his name. Jim. Jim. Mm -hmm. Holding in court, giving his statement, holding a picture of Michaela. Mm -hmm. And I, I, who who am I to tell this father what he thinks he needs? Yeah. You know? Yep. I can't imagine. So, again, that's a topic that I have mixed feelings about. But because especially in cases like this where when the, the perpetrator has mental health issues... There's a good chance, like, life is worse than death for him because he's tormented by his Truly, and his mental health issues. So is the death sentence justice or is, is it actually, would you be relieving him? I mean, he was planning on killing himself anyway. So yeah, I don't know. I, I have mixed feelings about it, so I don't really, 
I don't know. But that's not where it ends, of course. No, I knew that was coming because I'm thinking to myself, but like if he's legally disabled, who's mm-hmm. legally responsible mm-hmm. for what happened? Because I know what, what I feel. Okay. So here's the, here's the thing. I'm glad that you phrased it like that because here's the thing. He was considered legally disabled as far as working mm-hmm. like so he, like I said he probably was collecting uh social security disability. However, he was never deemed incapacitated. Yeah. So okay. While so his parents I see what you're saying. chose to take responsibility for him and chose to manage everything for him, they legally did not have to. They I were not saying. De- they were not deemed his custodians or legal Mm -hmm. guardians per se they were just choosing to take responsibility of course like my my little intro was going to be so what do families do when they feel justice was not served in the criminal system well they turn to the civil system hey man that's what's for so i mean that's not what civil system is for but that's how our system is set up it's set up this way yes for a reason the two different burdens of proof are set up for a reason yeah So enter not one, but two civil suits, not against Paul, but against Paul's parents, Mm -hmm. Michael and Carol Marriage. The first case was filed by Jim and Muriel Sitton, acting on behalf of their daughter, Michaela, as well as Dr. Antoine Joseph, acting as personal representative of his wife, Raymond. The second case was filed by Patrick Knight, Paul's brother-in-law, for both his physical injuries mm-hmm. as well as as personal representative of the estate of his wife Lisa and their unborn child was yeah, but I pregnant? don't think I don't think the court No, I know. I'm reminding us of yes. that. Yes. So while these were filed separately, each were represented by different attorneys. However, the complaints were very similar, of course, in their allegations. Both complaints created a foreseeable zone of risk, citing the marriage's knowledge of Paul's threats against those in attendance of the dinner. Both complaints allege that a special relationship in which they would be responsible for Paul's actions. Yeah, I I absolutely see. I, mm-hmm, yep. Yep. The only significant difference in the allegations was that Patrick Knight's suit claimed that the special relationship was due to the marriages assuming the role of custodian over Paul, whereas the Sittens claimed that the special relationship was just a given due to them being family. And, and, And the fact that they were financially supporting him. Yes. That's where I see it. As somebody who is like a total torts and contract law geek, that presumed relationship that presumed responsibility is a big thing in courts yeah because it's like if we have a an agreement but it's not a verbal one that every week i'm gonna bring you six eggs and in return you're gonna give me two gallons of milk and that's been going on for 20 years if you go back and there's no contract but it's been going on for however many years the court honors that yeah so You know, but but does this relationship count as a contract? Do they treat that as a contract? Yeah. And so that's where they say, no, not really. 
Uh, the trial court dismissed both cases, stating that neither adequately established a special relationship with the victims themselves, because that's what you need to establish. Mm-hmm. Is it that did they have if they didn't have a special relationship with Paul? Did they have a special relationship with the victims? Did they to I protect see. them? What's that word? Yeah. Did they have responsive? What's that word? There's a word for this. We talked about it in school. I don't know because I try to like simplify everything. So it's probably in the <laughs> in the thing. And I'm not good on the spot. No, I'm words. trying to think. There's a term for that. Who you're responsible for. Were yes. you responsible for for what happened to them versus just your responsibility to the vi- to the perpetrator? Right. So the court says they were not responsible for the victims because I'll get to that in a second, but they weren't responsible for the victims, nor were they, nor did they have the ability to control Paul, is basically what the court said, the trial court. This is my favorite kind of law. Now, upon appeal, they argued that the trial court erred in dismissing the complaints because the marriage's invitation alone created the foreseeable zone of risk, and they claimed that the issue of a legal duty is nothing more than the foreseeability. I would, I see what you're saying. I would also argue that them inviting Paul to some place where there are are those victims Mm -hmm. makes them responsible for the victims. Yeah. Well, Well. here's what they said. (laughs) (laughs) You know. And this is a quote. Recognizing that this is a case where plaintiffs seek to impose liability upon defendants for the criminal acts of a third party, we reject this approach for two reasons. First, the imposition of a legal duty in this type of case is tied to either a special relationship between the plaintiff and defendant or the defendant's control over the premises where the injury occurred. The instrumentality (laughs) causing the injury or the person causing the injury. And the court says they had control over none of those things. It wasn't in their home. They can't control their adult son, who who they're not legal guardians of. I see. Um, Nor could they control his ability to go to a store and purchase a firearm because he's an adult. And so basically they said they agreed with the trial court I see that. The marriages it does make sense. Had no legal duty. The Sittens and Dr. Joseph still not satisfied. They actually, I think at that point, Patrick Knight like said, okay, whatever, I want to move on with life. Mm-hmm. Sittens and Dr. Joseph attempted to take their case all the way to Florida Supreme Court, but the only thing that I could find was their actual petition. Mm-hmm. I could find nothing that indicated that they ever actually heard the case out yeah or made an opinion about it so last thing where are they now dun, dun, dun. michael marriage is actually reportedly retired from the cia yes mm-hmm. and carol marriage continues to work as a real estate agent in miami that was weird I kind of like half expected them to become recluse and like move. Yeah. But nope. She's you can look her up. I think she works with like Coldwell Coldwell Banker or something. Yep. 
while they continued their relationship with Paul, they reportedly made it very clear to him that they, quote, have nothing left as his actions tore them apart from their family. They've lost their daughters. They lost their unborn grandchild. Nobody else in the family will speak to them. Yeah, yeah just because they didn't have a legal responsibility proven by the court, um, their family definitely still feels like they had a moral and ethical responsibility yes. that wasn't fulfilled. Yeah. I could not find anything on Dr. Joseph, but he's got to be. He was, like, I think in his 70s at the time of shooting. So if he's still alive, which I couldn't find any obituary or anything on him, um, he's got to be at least in his 80s, Yeah, if not older. So I hope he's, like, living out his days, if he's still out there peacefully after losing his wife. Um, Patrick Knight had a long recovery after his shooting he didn't die but he was severely injured he had actually been in a coma for a few months and then woke up and they had to tell him yeah your wife and unborn child didn't oh that's horrible he then had to undergo extensive physical therapy to even regain the use of his hand and the last thing i found written about him where he like spoke to anybody was pretty much like i just want to move on with my life yeah I, I don't want to, you know. Jim and Muriel Sutton, like Sitton, sorry, not Sutton. Like I said, they've done several interviews. They shared in some of the newer um, interviews that they've done on like anniversaries. They stayed in their home. Yeah. Which people probably have mixed feelings about or they find one side or the other. I don't know that I would want to stay there, but he explained it as though... They were talking about leaving. His Muriel said, there's no way we can stay in this house. But he went into Michaela's room after it was like all cleaned mm-hmm. up and just said, no, this is this is still Michaela. Like this is yeah. she's still here. So they stayed and they actually went on to have two more daughters. And that's actually significant because I don't think they were young parents to begin with. They did. I don't think so. No, but. They did have two more girls, and they're still living in Jupiter in the same house and wow. seem happy. Um, and their first little girl after Michaela actually looks kind of like a spitting image of Michaela. It's mm. interesting. Wow. Well, this was a case. So happy Thanksgiving. I hope your Thanksgiving goes better than that. I hope there's no Paul Michaels coming to shoot you at Thanksgiving. Yeah, I'm 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 out of words, but I will say that this kind of this complicated civil law is my favorite kind of law to talk about because it's just Well, then why are we doing true crime? No, no, no. 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 This is but this is an example of like yeah, of how yeah. when criminal cases turn turn yeah. civil, mm-hmm. how complicated it can get and I think that's what it's kind of what made me love law was the sort of yeah. the contract and the torts and so this was fascinating yeah. for me. I hope we broke it down a little bit. I don't know. I kind of got excited there. and I Yeah, I was excited when I started digging into the case because, of course, I chose it because of Thanksgiving. But once I started digging in, I was like, oh, this is fantastic because that is such a huge question. And, of course, I know everybody probably uses this case but because it's possibly the most famous case of where that happened. But... The O.J. Simpson case where he criminally was found not guilty, mm-hmm. but yet 
he lost the civil suit. So people go, what, what, how does that happen? How can you yeah. be found not guilty criminally, but you're responsible civilly? Well, it's because that's, that's how it works. The burden of proof, the burden is, different. Of proof is different. So one day maybe we'll explain that. I don't think I have it in my, I don't think I have it yeah. emotionally to talk about that right now, yeah. but one day we'll talk about it. We will for sure. Well, right. happy Thanksgiving. Go happy eat some cake. Um, and some um, cake. Do you eat cake on Thanksgiving? Pound cake. Oh. I mean, well, I think that's just a my family thing. Go eat some pie. Yeah, I was going to say pie. Oh, I got a mini pie maker. <gasps> pie. I am so excited about that mini pie. It better work as well as I expected I to hope because so. I am pumped. I hope so. Um, and also remember all of the horrible things that we did to the Native Americans on this day. Oh, and yes. Um, you know, bye. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, <laughs> thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening next time. Bye. bye. Thanks for listening, guys. Find us on Instagram and TikTok at Burden of Proof Pod and email us at burdenofproofpod at gmail.com.